Chapter 18 of Raspberry Jam by Caroline Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Guilty One. Ovid, you shock me. You amaze me. How dare you talk to me of love when my husband hasn't been dead a fortnight? What matter, Eunice? You never really loved Sanford. I did. I did. Not lately, anyhow. Perhaps just at first, and then not deeply. He carried you originally by storm. It was an even toss-up whether he or Elliot or I won out. He was the most forceful of the three, and he made you marry him didn't he now don't talk nonsense i married sanford of my own free will yes and in haste and repented at leisure now don't be hypocritical and pretend to grieve for him his death was shocking fearful but you're really relieved that he's gone why not admit it Olvid stop such talk i command you i won't listen very well dearest i'll stop it i beg your pardon i forgot myself i confess now let me atone i love you eunice and i'll promise not to tell you so or to talk about it now if you will just give me a ray of hope a glimmer of anticipation will you sometime darling let me tell you of my love after such an interval as you judge proper will you eunice no i will not i don't love you i never did and never can love you how did you ever get such an idea into your head the beautiful face expressed surprise and incredulity rather than anger and eunice's voice was gentle in such a mood she was even more attractive than in her more vivacious moments unable to control himself hendrix took a step toward her and folded her in his arms she made no effort to disengage herself but said in a tone of utter disdain, Let me go, Ovid. You bore me. As she had well known, this angered him far more than angry words would have done. He released her instantly, but his face was blazing with indignation. Oh, I do, do I? And who can make love to you and not bore you? Elliot, you are still forgetting yourself i am not i'm thinking of myself only oh eunice dear eunice i have loved you so long and i have been good all the time you were sanford's wife i never so much as called you dear never gave you even a look that wasn't one of respect for my friend's wife 
but now now that you are free i have a right to woo you it is too soon yes i know that but i will wait wait as long as you command if you will only promise me that i may some time never i told you that before i do not want to be obliged to repeat it please understand once for all i have no love to give you because it is another's eunice tell me you do not care for elliot and i won't say another word now i will wait patiently for a year two years as long as you wish only give me the assurance that you will not marry mason elliot you are impossible how dare you speak to me of my marriage with anybody when my husband is only just dead one word more of it on the subject and i shall forbid you my house all right my lady put on your high and mighty air if you choose but before you marry that man make sure that he did not himself prepare the way for the wedding what do you mean are you accusing mason of i make no accusations but who did kill sanford i know you didn't do it and elliot has engaged stone to prove that you didn't it is absurd we all know to suspect aunt abby i was out of town who is left but mason hush i won't listen to such a suggestion mason was at his home that night are you sure of course i am sure and i don't have to have it proved by a detective either and now ovid hendricks you may go i don't care to talk to anyone who can make such a contemptible accusation against a lifelong friend but before hendricks left elliot himself came in he was grave and preoccupied he bowed a little curtly to hendricks and as he took eunice's hand he said may i see you alone i want to talk over some business matters and i'm pressed for time oh all right hendricks said i can take a hint i'm going how's your sleuth progressing elliot has mr stone unearthed the murderer yet not yet but soon and elliot essayed to pass the subject off lightly very soon hendricks looked at him in a curious manner very soon i think that's interesting would it be indiscreet to ask in what direction one must look for the criminal it would very elliot smiled a little now run along hendricks that's a good chap i have important business matters to talk over with eunice 
Hendricks went, and Elliot turned to Eunice with a grave face. I've been going over Sanford's private papers, he said, and Eunice, there's a lot that we want to keep quiet. Was Sanford a bad man? She asked, her quiet white face imploring a negative answer. Not so very, but, as you know, he had a love of money. A sort of acquisitiveness that led him into questionable dealings. He loaned money to anyone who would give him security. That isn't wrong. Not in itself, but, oh, Eunice, I can't explain it to you, or at least... I don't want to, but Sanford let money to men, to his friends, who were in great exigency, who gave their choices belongings, their treasures as security, and then he had no leniency, no compassion for them. Why should he have? Because, well, there is a justice. That is almost criminal. Sanford was a... a Shylock. There. Can you understand now? Who were his debtors? Ovid? Yes. Hendrix was one who owed him numerous sums. And he was going to make lots of trouble. I mean, Sanford was. Why, Eunice... In Sanford's private safe are practically all of Hendrick's stocks and bonds put up as collateral. Sanford holds mortgages on all Hendrick's belongings, real estate, furniture, everything. Now, just at the time Sanford died, these notes were due. This indebtedness of Hendrick's to Sanford had to be paid and merely the fact of Sand's death occurring just when it did save Ovid from financial ruin. Do you mean Sanford would have insisted on the payment? Yes. Then, oh, Mason, I can't say it. I wouldn't breathe it to anyone but you. But could Ovid have killed Sanford? Of course not, Eunice. He was in Boston, you know. Yes, I know. But, Mason, he hinted to me just now that, that, maybe you killed Sam. Did he, dear? Then he was angry, or, or crazy. He doesn't think so. Perhaps he was very jealous. Yes, he was. How did you know? I have eyes. You don't care for him, particularly. Do you, Eunice? Their eyes met, and in one long look, the truth was told. A great love existed between these two, and both had been honest and honorable so long as Eunice was Sanford's wife. 
and even now, though Embry was gone, Elliot made no protestation of love to his widow, said no word that might not have been heard by the whole world, but they both knew no word was necessary. A beautiful expression came over Eunice's face. She smiled a little, and the love light in her eyes was unmistakable. I shall never lose my temper again, she said softly, and Mason Elliot believed her. Another big debtor to Sanford is Mr. Patterson. He went on, forcing himself to calm his righteous pulses and continue his business talk. How is that man mixed in our affairs? He's very much mixed up in Sand's affairs. But, Eunice, I don't want to burden you with all these details. Only, you see, Olvid is your lawyer, and it's confoundedly awkward. Look here, Mason. Do this, can't you? Forgive Olvid, all Sanford's claim on him. I mean, wipe the slate clean. As far as he is concerned, I don't want his money. I mean, I don't want to keep his stocks and things. Give them all back to him. And hush the matter up. You know, we four, Sanford and Ovid, and you and I, are the old quartet, the three boys and a girl, who used to play together. Now one of us is gone. Don't let's make any trouble for another of the group. I have enough money without realizing on Ovid's securities. Give them all back to him and forget it, can't we? Why, yes, I suppose so, if you so decree. What about Patterson? Oh, those things you and Ovid must look after. I have no head for business. And anyway, must it be attended to at once? Not immediately. Sanford's estate is so large, and his debtors so numerous, it will take months to get it adjusted. Very well. Let anything unpleasant wait for a while then. Now, on this very day, and at this very hour, Fibsy was in Philadelphia watching the initial performance of a new human fly. A crowd was gathered about the tall skyscraper where the event was to take place, and when Hanlon appeared, he was greeted by a roar of cheering that warmed his applause-loving heart. Bowing and smiling at his audience, he started on this perilous climb up the side of the building. The sight was thrilling, nerve-wracking. Breathlessly, the people watched as he climbed up the straight, sheer façade, catching now at a window ledge, now at a bit of a stone ornamentation, and again seeming to hold on by nothing at all, almost as a real fly does. When he negotiated a particularly difficult place, the crowd forbore to cheer 
instinctively feeling it might disturb him he went on higher and higher now pausing to look down and smile at the sea of upturned faces below and in a moment of a bravado even daring to pause and hanging on by one hand and one foot scissor out his other limbs and wave a tiny flag which he carried on he went and on at last reaching the very top over the coping he climbed and gaily waved his flag as he bowed to the applauding crowds below then for hanlon was a daring soul the return journey was begun even more fascinating than the ascent was this hazardous task fibsy watched him noted every step every motion and was fairly beside himself with the excitement of the moment and then when half a dozen stories from the ground when success was almost within his grasp something happened nobody knew what a misstep a miscalculation of distance a slipping stone whatever the cause hanlon fell fell from the sixth story to the ground those nearest the catastrophe stepped back others pushed forward and an ambulance ready for such a possible occasion hurried the wounded man to the hospital for hanlon was not killed but so crushed and broken that his life was but a matter of hours perhaps moments let me in i must see him fibsy fought the doorman the attendants the nurses i tell you i must in the name of the law let me in and then a more coherent insistence brought him permission and he was immediately admitted to hanlon's presence a priest was there administering extreme unction and saying such words of comfort as he could command but at the sight of fibsy hanlon's dull eyes brightened and he partially revived yes him he cried out with a sudden flicker of energy i must talk to him the doctor fell back and made way for the boy let him talk if he likes he said nothing matters now poor chap he can't live ten minutes owed but very determined fibsy approached the bedside he looked at hanlon strangely still and white yet his eyes burning with a desperate desire to communicate something come here he whispered and fibsy drew nearer to him you know he said yes and fibsy glanced around as if to be sure of his witnesses to this strange confession you killed sanford embry i did i i oh i can't talk you talk this is his confession fibsy turned to the priest and the doctor listened to it 
then addressing himself again to hanlon he resumed you climbed up the side of the apartment house on the cross street not on park avenue and you got in at miss ames window yes said hanlon his white lips barely moving but his eyes showing acquiescence you went straight through those two rooms softly not awaking either of the ladies and you killed mr embry and then you returned through the bedrooms again the eyes said yes and passing through miss ames room she stirred and thinking she might be awake you stopped and leaned over her to see there you accidentally let fall perhaps from your breast pocket the little glass dropper you had used and as you bent over the old lady she grabbed at you and felt your jersey sleeve even bit at it and tasted raspberry jam that jam got on that sleeve as you climbed up past the patterson's window where a jar of it was on the window sill yes that's right hanlon breathed and on his face was a distinct look of admiration for the boy's perception you wore a faintly ticking wrist-watch the same one you're wearing now and the odor of gasoline about you was from your motorcycle you then were the vision miss ames has so often described and you glided silently away from her bedside and out at the window by which you entered gee it was some stunt this tribute of praise was wrung from fibsy by the sudden realization that what he had for some time surmised was really true i guess it was that jam that did for you he went on but say we ain't got no time for talking hanlon's eyes were already glazing his breath came shorter and it was plain to be seen the end was very near who hired you Pipsy flung the question at him with such force that it seemed to rouse a last effort of the ebbing life in the dying man and he answered faintly but clearly ovid hendricks ten thousand dollars and then hanlon was gone reminding the priest and the doctor that they were witnesses to this dying confession fibsy rushed from the room and back to new york as fast as he could get there he learned by telephone that fleming stone was at mrs embry's and pausing only to telephone for shane to go at once to the same house fibsy jumped into a taxicab and hurried up there himself it's all over he burst forth as he dashed into the room where stone sat talking to eunice mason elliot was there too indeed he was a frequent visitor 
and aunt abby sat by with her knitting what is asked stone looking at the boy in concern for fibsy was greatly excited his fingers worked nervously and his voice shook the whole thing mr stone hanlon's dead and he killed mr embry yes i know flemingstone showed no surprise did he fall yes sir got up the climb all right and most down again and fell from the sixth floor killed him but not instantly i went to the hospital and he confessed who did said shane coming in at the door at the last words were spoken willie hanlon a human fly and then fleming stone told the whole story fibsy adding here and there his bits of information but i don't understand said shane at last why would that chap kill mr embry hired said fibsy as stone hesitated to speak hired by a man who paid him ten thousand dollars hanlon a gunman said shane amazed not a professional one fibsy said but he acted as one in this case the man who hired him knew he was privately learning to be a human fly and he had the diabolical thought of hiring him to climb up this house and get in at the only available window and kill mr embry with the hannah bain stuff and the man's name shouted chain the name of the real criminal fibsy sat silent looking at stone his name is ovid e hendricks was stone's quiet reply an instant commotion arose eunice her great eyes full of horror ran to aunt abby who seemed about to collapse from sheer dismay mason elliot started up with a sudden where is he and shane echoed with a roar yes where is he can he get away no said stone he can't i have him covered day and night by my men at present mr shane he is i'm quite sure in his office if you want to go there if i want to go there i should say i do he'll get his and in less than half an hour shane had taken ovid hendricks into custody and in due time that arch criminal received the retribution of justice shane gone fibsy went over the whole story once again you see it was mr stone's keeping at it what did it he connected up hanlon and the jam he connected up mr hendricks and the hamlet business we connected up hanlon and the gasoline and hanlon and the jersey and the motorcycle and all fibsy grew excited then we connected up hendricks and his perfect alibi always distrust the perfect alibi that's one of mr stone's first maxims well this hendricks he had a poor perfect alibi 
couldn't be shaken. So Mr. Stone, he says, the more perfect the alibi, the more we must distrust it. So we went for that alibi, and he found that Mr. Hendricks was sure in Boston that night, but he didn't have any real reason, not any imperative reason for going. It was a sort of trumped-up trip. Well, that's the way it was. He had to get Mr. Embry out of the way just then, or be shown up a ruined man. And two, he was afraid Mr. Embry be president of the club. And two, he wanted to... Fibsy gave one eloquent glance at Eunice and paused abruptly in his speech. Everyone knew, everyone realized that love of Sanford Embry's wife was one reason, at least, for the fatal deed. Everybody realized that Ovid Hendricks was a villain through and through, that he had killed his friend, though not by his own hand. Eunice never saw Hendricks again. She and Aunt Abby went away for a year's stay. They traveled in lovely lands, where the scenery and climate brought rest and peace to Eunice's troubled heart, and where she learned by honest effort to control her quick temper. And then, after two of the one-time friendly quartet had become only a past memory, the remaining two, Eunice and Mason Elliot, found happiness and joy. One of our biggest cases, F. Stone, said Fibsy one day, reminiscently. It was indeed, Fibs, and you did yourself proud. Great old scheme, perfect alibi, an unknown human fly, bolted doors, all the elements of a successful crime, if he hadn't slipped up on that raspberry jam. End of chapter 18 And end of Raspberry Jam by Carolyn Wells Thank you so much for listening.